from Thomas Pynchon's Inherent Vice. The hole in the ground was gone, and in its place rose a strangely futuristic building. From the front, it might have been taken at first for some kind of religious structure, smoothly narrow and canonical, like the church spire, only different. Whoever put it up must have had a pretty comfortable budget to work with too, because the whole outside had been covered in gold leaf. Then Doc noticed how this tall pointed shape was also curved from the street. He went down the block a little way and looked back to get a side view. And when he saw how dramatic the curve was and how sharp the point was at the top, he finally tumbled. Aha! In the old LA tradition of architectural whimsy, this structure was supposed to be a 60-story high golden fang. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is one of the most astoundingly talented writers that I've ever come across, but uh, he's also uh, one of my nearest and dearest because on the precipice of the final moment of heat and the One Heat Minute project, uh, I, I was falling, I was stumbling. My emotions like hit me like a tsunami of two years of project smashing into my face. And across the airwaves, across Skype, was a man afraid. A man who was like, holy shit, is this motherfucker going to drop the entire responsibility of this show in my lap right now? Like, this is the time that he loses his composure? And it was in that moment, and also reading his absolutely stunning uh, essay about inherent vice uh, that uh, we we knew that we were going to work together forever uh, he is the host of increment vice which you would also hear on one minute productions uh, this is none other than my vincent and delicato as he would love me to mention across the airways it is travis woods trav welcome to all the president's <laughs> minute Jesus Christ, Blake. You always butter me up so well. You're so sweet. This my, is what we love... do on One Heat Minute Productions. We butter up our guests. We're grateful for we their do. time. Blake, I'm so happy to talk to you today. My lovely internet husband. <laughs> we you are. We, we, we do. We, but you still get mad stuck, at me. You still get together. mad at me when I say, what was the other day you said you were you, you couldn't believe there was some movie that I didn't like or something like that? And uh, I can't remember what it was. I think I've already blocked it because I want us to get along. <laughs> and like the... Um, uh, like the put upon spouse that has has to look the other way. I'm a bit like Carmela Soprano uh, when you go out and you're nailing broads at the bada bing. And I just got to look the other way. I got to look the other way if I want to be happy and I keep the house. And look, yeah, Carmela's great. She's uh, she, she, she is the stabilizing force in that universe. So She's the skeleton key to the whole show, Blake. We can't do this. We can't do this. We are on a clock. We're here to talk about all the president's men. But yeah, she's the skeleton key to the whole show. She unlocks it. We're going to do it. We're going to do another podcast about that. Oh, but, shit. No, you, you, you and I, I feel um, a, a movie that you, you adore a great deal, I believe, is The Dark Knight. And mm. um, I, I do feel like um, you and I were destined to do this forever, Blake. Mm, you know, I'm destined to stare at you uh, from across <laughs> the planet and my laptop as we, as we talk about various, uh, various films, minute, minute by minute by minute. And yes, you did terrify me on that uh, second to last episode of One Heat Minute when I saw you getting emotional and... I uh, I was terrified, but in that moment I had to I had to grab the scepter and rise up, <laughs> fight the good fight for Heat, for Neil and Vincent. 
You sure did. And, uh, you sure did. That was a wild I, was, minute. That was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was reminded by it. I had a, had a couple of – it's just random at the moment. There's a couple of lovely emails trickling through from fans of the show and a couple of folks who are a little bit uh, behind uh, uh, or, or only just recently caught up with the show and have just finished it. Um, so it's. Uh, I just wanted to um, have a quick shout-out, especially to Wes, if you're listening to One Area Productions. Thank you. Lo- really lovely note about the show and about the guests. Um but here we Wait, are. Wait, did he say any? Did that guess? Did that person say anything about me? Because if not, then you, let's just move on. You to don't the, need to me. You don't need me to tell anyone else <laughs> about who's sending you notes. So let's just move uh, right let's along. Move on. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. So here we are. We're in 1976. This is right in your wheelhouse. This is right in 1976. Alan Pakula, all the president's men. Um, I know that you are more of a hard-boiled guy just by definition, but I feel like I've been listening to you on all uh, on on Increment Vice whilst I've been doing all the President's Men in tandem and um, producing the show, and I've been hearing you talk about the Golden Fang, and I just and especially in our second last episode that was recorded, I just can't help. Uh, but be thrilled and excited and also disturbed at the the Nixon White House resembling the Golden Fang. <laughs> it's just they're just well, the, yeah, <laughs> and it's just one of those things where we haven't directly talked about it. It, it is absolutely coming up in in Pynchon's expressions of that you know that turn. What, what happened to American society? It's just so funny that where these two films uh, that we're both currently you know wrangling with and trying to get to the bottom of and investigate just like Doc and Increment Vice and just like Woodward and Bernstein are trying to uncover, I feel like that there's a greater synergy right at this moment than maybe at any other time that I've thought about before. Blake, this is why you do what you do, because that never occurred to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're right, you know, as as Doc so eloquently puts it, you know, this is the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people, <laughs> which is a, you know... That kind of feels like throughout this film what Woodward and Bernstein are up against. But it's funny that you say that this is right in my wheelhouse because I actually thought it was something of the opposite when um, when you announced that you were going to do this show. Even before you announced, when you when you told me uh, privately that you were going to do all the president's minutes, which goddamn you and your you and your clever podcast names. <laughs> uh, full credit, by the way, goes to Blake for increment vice. That was his, not mine. It was a um, gift. It was a gift for Travis. I read his essay from my internet said, husband, and I said, uh, "Here, here you are. Here's your burden for the next year." <laughs> so, I was super excited to hop on an episode of All the President's Minutes. But when it actually came time to start thinking about the film, I legit went into a panic uh, because it's not a detective movie. No, it's not a movie about masculinity in crisis. Unless you want to count the weird Bob Altman-y secret honor malignance that was kind of slowly growing in the Oval Office. Nor is it a detective movie about masculinity in crisis. <laughs> and those are really the only things that I have any interest in nor know how to or, or know how to talk about. That's, you know, that's kind of my beat. So, yeah, I was like, oh, Christ, how the hell am I going to approach talking about uh, Woodward sitting on the phone and talking? Like, I have... That is the most not Travis thing that I could possibly talk about. It's really about. well lit as well. It's not even yeah. – he's not sitting on the floor. And I was like, well, hey, I like I like De Palma. There's a split diopter <laughs> shot. Maybe I could talk about that. Who the hell? God, I don't know. I'm going to leave Blake really hanging on this one. And yet I went back you know, and I did what I always do, which is just marinate and watch the movie 50 fucking times. And <laughs> you know, I, I was like you – know, and because I have to make it all about me uh, – 
I was like, I was like, no, no, this is this is totally me because all the president's men is a buddy cop movie. Yes, it's totally a buddy cop film or yeah. buddy detective film, and you've even you've got the mismatched losers these these cub reporters who are doggedly looking to get this capital O T R one thing right <laughs> despite being uh not exactly being you know regular phil marlowe's or jim rockford's but like pure buddy cop or buddy detective movies they complement one another in that they each have a thing that the other does not and they only function at their absolute best their absolute best when they are paired together like say the the scene when they're on the phone after they spoke after bernstein's talking to the librarian and they just form like this lattice, this net through which lies cannot get through. Yes. But only when they're working together as a two-hander. And uh, they've got a chief that's constantly busting their balls, not for destroying five city blocks, but just for maybe missing a detail. <laughs> but he, but the chief ultimately backs them when they're going up against this nefarious power. And they each kind of have a unique drive for why they're doing what they're doing. Bernstein's a radical who just wants to take the bad guys down because he sees them as evil from yes. from his vantage on the far left woodward is more just about doing the job and wanting to chase the story there's almost not a moral compunction in him as much as there is i just this is this is the job i'm supposed to write about this shit and the fact that they stumble onto this grand disturbing uh mystery that has implications that touch every corner of the planet they just stumbled onto this because of a much, much, much smaller mystery, as is usually the case in my detective movie bullshit. <laughs> and so once I had that, I was so happy to be watching this movie for the 49th and 50th time because I was like, oh, yeah, this is uh, this is a Shane Black movie minus the almost Tourette's level need to have a one liner every other minute. <laughs> and there's just not a lot of gunplay. But, yeah, it's a totally totally it's totally a buddy cop movie, buddy cop. and i Can we love qualify it. not a lot of gunplay no gunplay but 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 well still, sure but, sure but but, but, but those, there but are the one those keys are the typewriters those keys slamming down those <laughs> that feels like uh, the rat-a-tat-tat of a machine gun it does like a tommy gun like a tommy gun yeah look i knew you would find your way into it and that's it's so weird is um what what you really what has been defined maybe in each of our brands is uh, is an affinity for for that detective bullshit. The only thing I wanted to challenge you on, which, but I think is good. It's a good challenge. Is I think that um, I think that Bob Woodward defines his morality via the job. Like the job is holding people to bullshit. He's got a great sure. bullshit meter, and so I think that that's where where I look at Woodward and I love that is that. I think that Bernstein's on that left and Bernstein thinks everyone's a fucking liar. <laughs> I think that that's what's beautiful about him. Like he thinks that everyone's bullshit. Everyone's everyone's out to get everyone. Everyone's going to screw everyone over. It's a much more modern um, – you can feel a lot more of like modern cynicism and an affinity in, in, a, in a character like Bernstein because you're like, oh, of course they're going to screw us over. Of course the government's doing dodgy stuff. Of course it is. And, and these gatekeepers as editors are sort of holding them and curating them as they go. But I like that – I love Bob Woodward's morality just is like it's, it's, it's like what you can set your watch to. Like he's doing the job and he just wants to know right and wrong and his assumption is that right is right and wrong is wrong and that, that is that. And that sort of maybe – I don't know. You can look at it naivete or you can look at it like maybe this aspirational views that he has for the way that he 
conducts himself. But I just love that. I love that uh, dichotomy between those two guys. And you're right. Like William Goldman invented the buddy comedy, uh, buddy cop comedy, essentially with uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So it's not a surprise for him to find. Oh, this is how you wrangle the rhythm of this behemoth because it's impossible. As we've, you know, we've both sort of seen in, and you most definitely in increment uh, increment vice uh, studying inherent vice is the lattice work of trying to figure out all of the different pieces. You really need a window. A detective is a great window um, into this, even if they can't grasp everything that's happening even if they in all their scribbles and all their notes or writing on their goddamn kitchen wall um you know sometimes <laughs> they they may not be able to completely wrangle it all together but they kind of get the picture and hone in on whatever their focus needs to be to to keep us moving through this through this winding bramble well there are two types of movies that not only require massive amounts of exposition but thrive on exposition which is usually the weak point of any (laughs) cinematic narrative is is exposition Mm -hmm. Uh, when you have the character who's speaking these wholly inorganic lines that have nothing to do with character or motivation or an inner world and are literally just like all right right now audience as is at point a i got to get them all the way down to z so I got to do just some some shoe leather here and just explain where we're at and where we're going and it's 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 mind-numbingly dull but we got to do it but there are, as I said, two genres that not only require exposition, but they thrive on it. They make it – that's part of why you watch it. And those are the heist movie yes, and the detective movie, and which is why I think really quickly um, two directors that I think sometimes have problems with a little too much, uh, a little too much exposition, which would be Fincher and Nolan. That's why I think their best films – are their heist movies or their detective movies. Yes. You look at something like Seven uh, or Zodiac. you look at something like Zodiac. And then like, you know, with Nolan, you look at something like Inception. Finally, they found forms that match their very unique and specific approach to filmmaking in a way that is absolutely perfect. And so that long rambling discursive aside, <laughs> aside uh, that's why I think this film had to be pitched as a detective narrative. In fact, I think originally, you know, the book uh, was going to be, you know, there's a there's a story where Redford was talking to Woodward and Bernstein as they were writing the book, yeah. and he was wanting to already buy the rights to it. Initially, Woodward and Bernstein were going to write a very traditional, this is what Nixon did, this is what Haldeman did, this is what Coulson did, and just be a very omniscient third-person fly on the wall version of the actual machinations of political corruption, Woodward and Bernstein were not going to be a part of the story. No. And it was Redford that said, you know, you, you guys are the story. That's the story. That's what makes it interesting. Everyone knows the omniscient facts at this point. Yeah. The entryway is you. The entryway, the way to present it and it not feel like a textbook (laughs) is make you we can't make well i guess i mean if you, if you wanted to focus solely on watergate alone you could make that a heist movie but if we can't make this a heist movie, the dumbest or a heist, heist story, movie of all time. Yeah, <laughs> look these guys these aren't very bright guys they just went a little too far uh but this has to be a detective i had narrative. to get it on like, man like, i had to I just like <laughs> oh everybody we blake and i so badly just want to start talking about heat right now i mean not, not, not no slur against all the president's men it's a wonderful film we love it but we were already talking about heat before we started recording we got Blake. Come on, we, we're professionals. 
Um, so I yeah, may, I'm this... sorry for people listening, but sometimes I try and throw Travis off track because this is what happens when you talk to someone who's also a podcast host. You just try and throw them curveballs all the time to make him catch. And, you know, Travis is very good at catch these days, guys. He's very good at it. Oh, so I'm just trying to, yeah. I'm trying to take him out of his game, but he's, he's, he's keeping me on point, which is good. That's exactly Blake, what we need. This is, this I'm trying is, to throw this is him... why, I, this is why I internet married you. Bless your heart. <laughs> so going back, see, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to let you get me off point. God damn it. Um, the detective movie is really the only form I think that you could have made this film and it not feel like a textbook. Mm. You know, you don't want a straight history lesson unless you the only person that can actually do a history lesson, even though they're not always 100 percent accurate um, and make it interesting is someone totally insane like, you know, coke brained. Oliver Stone in the mid nineties. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, JFK shouldn't work, but it works because, because of how insane the, the collage of styles that film uh, brings to bear with this film, you need a detective narrative and that's exactly what it gives us. But as I said, what's so interesting and what's kind of the buddy cop nature about it is Woodward and Bernstein are not the best at what they do and that's what makes this that's what also gives this well i was gonna say it's what gives this an inherent drama as if the potential collapse of our entire (laughs) democracy isn't inherently enthralling enough we have to worry that the two guys that are responsible for for holding it up are these two guys that can't even remember to ask if uh haldeman or not haldeman but if uh if what's his name, if if Howard Hunt uh, still writes for this uh, spy novel publisher or not, uh, or uh, that uh, is totally unaware that uh, he works for the CIA until someone goes, oh, you know, he works for the CIA. You would know that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting is these guys are kind of the least qualified to be doing what they are doing. And yet that's what kind of gives the the arc of this that kind of nobility is this is uh you know this is some don quixote shit these are two guys chasing windmills but convinced of the righteousness of that and ultimately finding that there are giants behind the windmills yes and there that if you know me at all that is so my shit and that so rings my bell these (laughs) these loser detectives looking for a little redemption and that's totally what this film is that's totally how uh redford and goldman and pakula how they how they shaped this and they knew that this was the only way especially Redford who really deserves some auteur credit for this film because so much of this film shape is his work and him pushing Woodward and Bernstein to frame it about them and him I believe I wasn't I believe he actually chose Pecula to direct like I think that was his call it's oh yeah it's it's a <clears throat> it's a fascinating thing I don't know if we've talked about all of them in sequence that's so a good opportunity to talk about it with Trav but it's like Redford, as at the peak of his powers at the time, it is it is still 1974. Woodward and Bernstein are still writing what will eventually become the compilation of stories for the final days, books of Nixon's final days, and then the Saturday Night Massacre, where Nixon, you know, sacked his um, uh, attorney general and and all those sorts of wonderful things that you can. I mean, anyone who hasn't yet listened to Leon Nafuck's Slow Burn podcast, um, which is available for free, the, it's an eight episode series, and more if you are a slate, um, if you're a slate subscriber um, to get to their special sort of extended interviews. But he covers that entire period, the post Watergate, and particularly um, the Saturday Night Massacre, etc. But 
he's talking to those guys then, helping them frame where the story should go, telling them that he wants the rights to it. Then he's looking around at amazing filmmakers that are working at the time and picks Pakula. And then Pakula comes with Gordon Willis, the greatest. <laughs> like if you're talking about as a producer and you're like, oh, I'm going to get that director and oh, that means I'm going to get potentially the greatest cinematographer who's ever lived um, at the same time. That's great. And he's crafting the whole thing. He picks Bill Goldman because of their relationship from Butch Cassidy and Sundance. And, and then he goes and shoots the lights out to pick a Hoffman. Like he doesn't want to dwarf the person next to him. He wants to get one of the other most reputable, most famous actors in the world at that time. Um, and he does. And it's just, it is a crazy thing for him as a producer. It is the, it is kind of a landmark of his career. Um, and the more that people go back to it, after so many iconic performances and directorial efforts and Oscars and things like that, I think when you all come back around, I don't think that there's ever really been a feat from a performer who's got clout to manifest something into existence that is as perfect as this. Like it's just, it doesn't, it actually is unfathomable that that close to this event with that level of entanglement that this movie is executed to the precision and that you can even bother talking about it right now. It's just so crazy to me. And it really is, as a brief aside here, this movie is comes just about as close to being 1970s, the motion picture, <laughs> as is humanly possible. Yes. And that you've got Pakula directing, you've got Gordy Willis shooting, you've got Can Redford starring. I love starring, it, Gordon, Gordy Willis, that's so great. Hey, anyway. as a veteran of many a Francis Ford Coppola commentary track he's gordy willis to me you've got robert redford producing and directing william fucking goldman and i got something to say about him regards to with regards to future a all the president's minutes guest jim hemphill in a moment uh you got william goldman and then you've got redford with his cliff booth hair you got dustin hoffman jason robards cable fucking hogue in your movie <laughs> winning an oscar for like a 10 minute role Hal Holbrook, hey, hey, Martin hey. Balsam. Pound for pound. I'm not, I'm, not, pound, I'm not criticizing. Pound for, pound He's for pound. He, I mean, Hot that day. scene where he talks about, uh, when he talks about LBJ sticking America with uh, Hoover for the rest of his life. And just Tell Van Bradley I when said, he, fuck you. Oh. <laughs> and the way he turns around and he like shakes his fist like, we got him. We're speaking truth to power. Oh, man. Uh, Martin Balsam, Jack Warden, Ned Beatty. F. Murray Abraham for like two seconds as a cop <laughs> in a fishing hat. This movie is literally a Jane Fonda, Elliot Gould, and Burt Reynolds series of cameos away from being the most definitive <laughs> 1970s mainstream film possible. Like, throw a, throw a Quincy Jones score on this thing, and it would have been the definitive 70s film. I just had to say that. It, 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 it's, it, it's one of those things when I don't know if it was as a big a deal then certainly probably wasn't as it is now but when you watch that movie now you're like jesus this really is just it's the 1970s in a movie mm. with all of the stars and the talent and the the that guys the capital tg that guys uh <laughs> a, a roster of actors it's it's just absolutely staggering and um you talked about that. you talked about the perspective as well there was one really good thing that you said you know it's 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 being crafted out of omniscience into personal, which what really, I think, jives with both of our taste, maybe. And that's sort of one of those underlying things that you, you can sort of dig in. But it's um, if you, you only have to look uh, a few years later, there's a 19... Um, 
there's a 1989 telly movie that was made of the final days and um and it stars lane smith who does a terrifically underrated richard nixon um there's a stack of other actors in there underrated actor in general by the way underrated lane actor smith. in general yeah very, very very good and he does a great nixon it's a really terrific performance but one one thing that's really interesting about it is they are trying to uh you can tell the movie is executed with this idea that we're going to be a presentation of the facts as they stand without any of that personal because it's hard to sort of get inside and penetrate Nixon. Later, Oliver Stone does what he does with Nixon and that's a completely different kettle of fish. But I I think if you watch that film, it's a great contrast to go, they start to try and have their cake and eat it too by just like crowbarring in these narrations where you sort of see the personal inner workings of people and and i think i i think of that as like a real great technical contrast because there's no need to do that in presidents because it all it brings all of that to the surface the investigation doesn't require you to find the internal machinations you you pouring in as we're about to on this minute if we ever get there um but this is what we do um that uh pouring into redford's face and watching him scribble notes is all the interiority that you need like the his interiority is exterior then you don't need to there's no need to like, oh, I, I, this is how I'm going to do it or what I'm going to do. Because the form doesn't require it. Um, I think it's kind of like a, it's it's more of a, a, a something that novels can lean on and, and even comic books. But I just love that that is a, as a stark contrast is a real freaking choice. And, and particularly, you know, um, looking at Pacula and Redford and the way they sort of wrangle that, um, I think it's just so it's really, really terrific decision. Before we jump into this minute, I'm going to do a little bit of house cleaning. A little bit of house cleaning here. Really quick. Just going to throw this out. Anybody wants to write, write in to Blake. Let him know. Hit either one of us up on Twitter. Do so. Pakula, why did he name Clute Clute? Good the, the name of the movie should not. The name of the movie should not be Clute. Just, 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 just throwing <laughs> that out there. I, I know this is like this is like the only chance I'm going to get to say this. I just had to throw it out there. I just don't understand it. Jane Fonda's character is clearly the main character. You should have just called the movie Bree. Just throwing it out there. Um, I know it's a just train wrecking this this the momentum that we had for this episode. <laughs> so now now that we've done that, I'm going to bat you and assist, Blake. Uh, going back to what you were saying about background and foreground working together, and we're gonna I'm going to use this pretentiousness that I'm going to throw at you to slide right into this minute. <laughs> One thing, uh, the, a device that's used throughout this film, pretty pretty heavily. And I think that its first extended use is actually in the minute we're going to be talking about is the use of the the constant use of the split diopter. Yes. Which if you're listening and you're not familiar with that term, the split diopter is a technique, a camera technique in which that which is in the foreground and that which is in the background are in focus at the same time. Usually you'll see it like in a De Palma movie. And there will be something, you know, on the right side of the screen in the foreground and it's in focus and then something on the left in the deep background that'll also be in focus. And there will be like a blurry line between them. Yes. Where the the focus is shifting. That's used a lot in this film. And the first time I was watching this, I really couldn't. Or the first time I was rewatching this in in many years, uh, which was for this show. I was watching that and thinking about what a weird, almost kind of wasted show-offy use of the split diopter is being brought to bear in this sequence where you have Redford sitting at his desk. He's kind of leaning back. He's on the phone. He's on camera left. Camera right is just the background of the newsroom and the hustle bustle of it. 
and Pakula and, and Willis, Gordy, my pal Gordy, they are <laughs> using the split diopter so that both Redford as, as Woodward and all the people just, you know, writing their stories, running around, passing notes, typing in the background, they're in focus too. It's like, well, what's the, what, why? I mean, what, where there's nothing visually dynamic, nor is there any delivery of information visually Yes, that we were getting. And so I actually got a little angry uh, as if I somehow knew better, somehow knew better than some of the finest filmmakers who have ever lived in America. But I was watching that and I was like, yeah, that's just what a show off a use of, of that technique. And then it keeps coming up. It keeps coming up and it keeps coming up throughout the film. And I'm like, why is he doing this? And then you get to the final scene of the movie. And the final scene of the movie on the left is the 1972 official re-election, reinvestiture, reinauguration of power of Richard Nixon. But on the right, and that's in the fore, that's that's our foreground. That's that foreground. That's our foreground. That's on our surface. In the back, in the background, where no one else is looking, are these two guys alone at their desk typing a story that is going to put truth on the page and speak truth to power and direct the course of American history out of the hands of the man in the foreground and to the people that are in the background. And I realized that what Pakula and Willis had been doing the whole movie through was slowly bringing the foreground and the background onto the same level. And they, if you watch the movie and it starts here, it starts here in this scene and in this scene is where Redford really truly begins to understand that something grander and larger than a half-assed break-in at a hotel is going <laughs> on. And it's in this moment that for the first time, foreground and background begin to converge. And just as you were saying uh, a few moments ago before I started on my grand eloquent uh, soliloquy here, it's this this merging of elements as they begin to come together and of 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 plot and as you were saying of plot and character and characterization and using characterization to deliver plot and here purely on purely visual terms Pakula and Will, uh, Willis are bringing the background the underground the people sitting in the rooms typing bringing them slowly but surely to the same level as the most powerful man on earth on the day that he was probably literally at the absolute height of yes. his power and his dubious popularity. And it all builds. It all builds from this moment that we are going to watch eventually. <laughs> it builds from this moment until it finally flowers in that final scene that Woodward and Bernstein, these two cub reporters, these nobodies, who were going to get fired last week <laughs> and one of whom doesn't even know who Chuck Colson, special counsel to the fucking president, doesn't even know who he is. These two cubbies, the boys, are on the same level as Richard Milhouse Nixon on the most powerful day of his life. And that starts right here in this moment with that first split diopter shot. And that kills me. Well, that is the perfect segue. Let's watch the minute together. Travis and I are going to watch it. It is the 17th minute of Alan Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. It's 16 minutes on your dial. We're going to watch it together, and then we're going to come back and unpack everything else. Hello? This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. I was told that you would work with a Mr. Howard Hunt. Why would anyone say that? 
You do know Mr. Hunt? No, I don't believe so, and uh, I can't imagine why anyone would say that. Listen, I'm really sorry, but I we was on need, my way um, out. Goodbye. Could we just confirm a couple... Bye. Did you see the Washington Post? Yes, that's right, the Post. Uh, your publishing firm was listed in some papers in connection with a Howard Hunt. Yeah, yeah, he's Is one that... of our authors. He wrote spy novels, I think. What type of spy novels were they? Were they modern? Or were they period... You say wrote? You mean he's no longer with you anymore? No, not at this time. How long has it been since you've heard from him? A couple of years, I think. Could you tell me some of the names of the novels that he has written? Bueno? Hello, is this Mr. Pa Paul Herrera? This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Ken? Bob Woodward. It's a good little minute, and what you know what I love about these minutes is it is ultimately, you know, for folks who are listening to Increment Vice, one of the choices that Travis and I made in production is to talk about the different scenes. And this is kind of a scene that I think could totally lend to that format in that you just want to dive into this entire investigative phone call, like in all the machinations of it in one conversation. But one <laughs> element I do love about this is just watching the idea that someone is fucking exhausted. Like, he's tired. He's just been on the phone all day. We're only getting, like, brief windows into different conversations. We can see that he's been on the phone constantly because of all these scribbled notes and changing pens and, like, trying to keep his eyes open while he's talking to different people and also have the wherewithal to find the tendrils and threads in what people are saying to actually follow them because he is quite intuitive at the beginning of the film. It's one of his talents. But his tiredness is, make, is making him lose a bit of that. And it's just a great series of moments where these little threads appear like they're not doing anything, but you're absolutely right. It's, we're starting to the materialize, uh, we're starting to materialize this, this story. There is something there. We're building the flesh. We're just touching, kissing the outside right now, but there's a behemoth. There's a behemoth that is, is, is sort of a monolith that's just sort of waiting in the wings, and there's a couple of tendrils that we're about to stumble on in the, in the forthcoming minutes. Sure. And if I can continue to be pretentious after <laughs> that split diopter speech, which, you know, I think you should have complimented me more on, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, because I thought that was sharp. It, uh, look, it was very sharp. But uh, bless your heart. But, Thank you for saying but so. In, but in true host form, I I let the segue run. It was a beautiful segue, so that's how we moved. <laughs> we just went straight into it. Yeah, yeah. If anyone listens to Increment Vice, I like to let things. Well, if there's a difference <laughs> between us, Blake keeps things tight. Blake Blake is definitely a. Uh, you're more of a Neil McCauley, I think, and I think I'm the the coked up Vincent Hanna that's just gonna <laughs> just gonna keep talking. Um, now, as you were saying, with uh, you know, you're you're beginning to, or Woodward is beginning to sense maybe just the most outermost peripheral edges of this monolith that he has no idea is looming mm. over him. You know, he just thinks it's a cloudy day. He doesn't realize he's shaded. The entire sun is blocked <laughs> out by this 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 giant. Uh, five o'clock shadowed head of Dick Nixon. Uh, but what what is so another purely visual idea at play here, and it's so obvious on one hand, but it's so fucking clever and it just works, is as in a very detective movie moment where as Woodward exhausted is being hit with just this never-ending accretion of information out of this stream of pure information onto his little notebook, uh, 
between the, the the barrage of info and his own kind of haphazardly dogged shoe leather work and just a little bit of pure instinct that maybe he's being lied to, that some bell is going off in the deep recesses of his brain. On that legal pad, in between all of the lines and the information, he starts sketching a man's face. Uh, yes. And it's like out of this flow of information, for lack of a better term, a bad guy is forming. <laughs> yes. And whoever he's drawing, maybe it's just Howard Hunt. Maybe it's just literally a random Woodward is just think it's a way of thinking. Yes. And so he's just drawing a face. But as he as more and more information accrues and more of that information seems to point to a nefarious direction, the more threatening that face becomes. And uh, once we start talking about the CIA and spy novels, sunglasses begin appearing out (laughs) of the ether and become inked onto this man's face. And it's such an incredibly clever, it's both so simple, you want to roll your eyes at it if someone were just telling you about it the way I am doing now. But when you actually see it happen, you're like, oh, that's, so, that's such a great little beat. A, a figure is forming the way a fang forms an inherent vice. A shadowy man behind sunglasses, uh, very threatening looking. This uh, this stony vin- visage that represents whatever the fuck this thing is that he's on the cusp <laughs> of of uncovering, it begins to cohere out of this flow of information. He is seeing the shape of, again, lack of a better term, the bad guy, and yes. he realizes he's finally looking at. Well, this is a bad guy situation. This this isn't a bunch of half-assed burglars. There is a force and a face and a consciousness behind this thing. These guys might not be very clever, uh, or they might not be very smart guys, as Deep Throat says. But there is a deeper intelligence and a, a, a deeper mind at work behind all this. And we see the first face of that here on this notepad. And that's such a what a beautiful cinematic representation of what is happening. And again, credit where it's due. When that the first time I saw that, I was like, oh God, Goldman, man. He's this is such a Goldman flourish. He's so smart. <laughs> Go back. It's not in the shooting script. Turns out that was purely Redford. Uh, Redford Redford was uh, an art student as a kid, and he literally did that as a nod, just like a, a personal little um, signpost for himself in the film. He's like, I used to be an actor, so I or I used to be an artist, and so I just threw in a little uh, little doodle there as a tribute to my artist days. That's all it was. And, but from that, <laughs> from that, we are able for this very podcast, as if Bob Redford, Bob, my buddy, did that for us. It's so representative of what Woodward is going through in that moment where he's like, holy shit, there's a face behind this thing. Mm. There is something else behind this beyond some shady looking uh, thieves. And that is just it is so sharp and so smart. Whatever the reasons for why it is there, it works on so many levels, as does so many things in this movie. Yeah, it's it's a really dynamic way to enliven the passage of information. It's also something that, you know, Reece, you guys are going to hear an episode upcoming where I talk to Vashinita Mansky, who really synthesizes this so beautifully. So I won't tread too much on the toes, but it's also the decision points of when to begin and end conversations where, where we're asking questions. Sometimes you don't hear the questions. Sometimes you don't hear the whole answer. Sometimes you, you're diving into the next phone call be- and the inference is we've received the information to contact this person by the last person we've spoken to. So it's all those things where, you know, right now there are these blinding details that are highlighted, you know, like she's nervous, you know, in red pen. It's almost like the red pen is like, this is the most significant thing you need to be yeah. knowing now. Nervous. <laughs> Knows him. <laughs> and then the picture is 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 like this this shady figure forming. Um, but it's just that, that, that ebb and flow of information. It's like we don't, 
we're not going to pick up everything in these moments. Not everyone's going to do it, but you need to feel the mood. You need to feel the you need to feel the strain of the the pursuit, um, and you need to know that it's just this is this is part of the job. Like you, like you said, it's the shoe leather. This is their beat. It is like grinding to get this information and try and sketch that figure. And then when they materialize, this is when things start you know to go through. And it's that I love just just choices choices. And um, there's a moment in the minute that we haven't spoken about yet, and I just love it is. How goddamn charming when Redford has a phone hung up on him, does he still just – there's no Can't one else in the receiver and he goes, goodbye, <laughs> and he puts the phone down. Yeah. There's just something else about that too that just says that's that nice Midwestern boy yeah, who could not – who would not just hang the phone up. His politeness even blooming when he's been hung up on, and this is his new life now. Like he's a cub reporter, as you said a couple of times. Like, this is his new life. He's going to get hung up on all the time. It's going to be an infuriation at some point. But, but it's also that it's, – it's that thing that polite people do when someone is rude to them that it doesn't defend them almost. It's <laughs> yes. just like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, that kind of unique Woodwardian – Woodwardian, that's a word, <laughs> Woodwardian version of morality, which is you know, he'll accept that someone wronged him like that. Uh, okay, it's funny. But what he won't accept and what I actually think makes him, you know, if, if, I, if I can talk to him in pure pulp detective movie terms, what makes him special, what makes him a good detective, there's a lot of things that make him a bad detective, which I want to talk about. But one thing that makes him a good one is for however much he is willing to accept the impoliteness of others and be insulted by others. He gets insulted a lot in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he's basically treated like an idiot child for, for a good deal of the movie uh, by even the people that end up respecting him uh, and, and a bad writer as well. Uh, Bernstein clearly has no respect for his skills <laughs> as a writer. The one thing, though, that Woodward cannot accept and refuses to accept, and in fact, when it happens, not only can he not accept it, it's almost what tripwires the latent detective in him. He cannot stand being lied to. Yes. And he will not accept when someone lies to him. And if someone lies to him, it's like something triggers in his head. And it, it, it becomes, all right, I'm not stopping until I burst through this wall and get to the other side to see what was being hidden from me. And that is what makes him, that is what he brings to the table. He might not be the writer that Bernstein is. And he might not even have that kind of that jittery caffeinated energy that <laughs> Bernstein has. But he also has that thing that if you you can be mean to him, you can insult him, you can step on him, you can steal his 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 article and start <laughs> rewriting it. And he'll he won't mind that you did it. He'll just mind the way you did it. But the one thing that just is a line cross with him, if you lie to him, if you betray the truth to him, just the one thing he's supposed to be adhering to in his his duty. If you betray truth to him, he's got your ass. He might not yes. know how to get your ass, but he's going <laughs> to go for it. And I love that about him. And I love that he has so many other flaws, but that's the one thing. That's his one special thing. And to go to bounce back from that onto his flaws, though, I do love how the movie unapologetically shows that he's also maybe not great at the rest of this. No. In that same scene where he's talking to the publisher and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's one of our authors. He wrote spy novels, I think. Now, Woodward, it's almost like he's not paying attention. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, what kind of spy novels were they? Were they modern? Were they period? Like, who the fuck? What does that have to do with anything? Why would you ask that question? He's just asking out of, like, kind of rote. 
uh, on on auto, autopilot. But I think and, that and, that's and, when it triggers. Like that's well, when the, the next the, question triggers. But that's but he stops himself mid sentence. He's like, were they modern or period? What you said wrote, and it's like it took him a minute to go. Oh wait, that's what's important. And it's to to tread on someone else's minute. There's that beat later where the guy's like, well, then you would know if you're doing a deep background on this guy, you, you would know he was in the CIA. And there's that great <laughs> beat where he's like, of course I would know that. Of course, he's, yes. Yeah, because he goes in the CIA. And the CIA, and he does that great line reading. And, and the, the fact CIA. that he doesn't even know who, who, who Colson is, you know, <laughs> this guy's covering politics for a Washington, D.C. paper, and he's never heard of the special counsel to President Richard Nixon. And that's both charming, but also, again, terrifying that this guy is not great at no. the job. You know, as, um, you know, Bernstein says, you know, in a minute, he's like, well, you know, you know, I've been doing this since I was 16. You've been here over like a couple of, was it a couple of weeks or a couple of weeks or whatever it is? Only nine months. Yeah, you, it's nine, a week, Jesus. Yeah, you've only been here nine months. Like, it's his way of saying, look, you're a puppy dog. You, you have no clue what you're doing. But again, what makes Woodward special is for whatever deficits he has as a writer and whatever deficits deficits he has as an investigator once he knows you've lied to him he will not let go of you he yes. might it might be a clumsy grip but it's a grip that he will not relinquish until you admit that you lied or he can find enough proof to prove it whether you cop to it or not and again again as the pulp detective guy that just rings my bell <laughs> and i love him for it and i loved it you get such a clean expression of that in this movie while so much else thematically is going on, as we said, with a split diopter, the drawing of the bad guy. This is, again, for a, uh, a single one-take shot of a dude on the phone, this is about as thematically dense <laughs> as this film gets. Yes. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And it's it's one great thing also is – you know, I think that this is where we talked about his flaws and that's what we love about him. But I think there's one thing that he he does have this savant level way of when he's communicating with someone face to face. There is something that draws information out of people. I spoke to Dana Calvo in the episode 11 who um, is the showrunner for Dune, the Sisterhood and was the, the creator behind the incredible show Good Girls Revolt. And she talked about that scene, she's a former journalist, that scene at the beginning where he's talking to Markham in the in the courthouse should be taught in journalism school about how to eke information out of someone, just like standing next to them, asking probing questions, following the tendrils of whatever they're giving you to just keep teasing out information to start building the story. And I think that that's what he gets to do later on, like where, where – Bernstein is clearly the better writer. Um, there's so many sequences where he's like ham-fistedly trying to extract information out of someone. Oh, my editor's here. It's like he's doing all the wrong things when it comes to interacting with people. And Woodward just sits down in front of someone and people <laughs> just talk. Like they just yeah. give him this information. Um, and well, even, he's also got the face of Robert Redford, which is yeah. probably easier to talk to if you had to. There's, Robert, there's plenty of scenes where he's talking to to young ladies who are a little stressed out. Now, and he gives him he bats he he kind of gives them a sad look and they just start uh, yeah. Now this is the this is the true question. This is another question. Mm. You 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 distracted with the why why the hell did he name Clute? Um, why did he name Clute <laughs> Clute? I'm going to say because you jumped on it is. I do want to know if because of the connection between Redford and Pitt and this constant comparison and contrast of these two guys, I need to know and I know that maybe some folks would be listening to a conversation between you and I about 
these kind of 70s movies. I need to know if Cliff Booth's hair was modeled after Redford in this movie. I need to know. Oh, come on. It absolutely was. Come on. I mean, look at I mean, this is the stupidest aside of all the stupid asides we're going to have. But uh, yeah, because I mean, come on. Look at that hair. That's total. That is, that's. That's Booth that's, 101, that's, baby. That's Bob Redford here. Come on. Come on. Come on. It's like, come on, Pitt. Um, we need you. To, we, we know that you're the Brad Pitt guy, but this, like, it's it's even time appropriate. You know, it's it's very time appropriate for the hair um, as well for Cliff. You know, 69. This is only meant to be 72, three years. You know, the style's in, so to speak. It's, 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 it, I think it fits quite, fits like a glove. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that we got it, 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 I, The only thing that is surprising me about us talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for and all the president's men podcast is it took us damn near an hour to get here <laughs> i'm surprised this wasn't the first the, the first thing that came out but no no it's yeah yeah think he could cliff could be redford stunt double if he wants to oh see what oh. i did um because he's a stunt double blake um that's no you but to go back to our to the boys in this film you're you're right and i and i love that you bring up that that bernstein He's a when it comes to writing, he's incredibly eloquent and gifted. But when it comes to dealing with human beings, especially if they're men, he's just a blunt tool. I love that scene with Ned with Ned Beatty where he's like, "You you called me. You said if I come down here, you'd you'd go over the records." Now my editor he's he's fucking waiting, and I gotta go home, and I'm still gonna write this, but I got nothing now, which is the most preschool childish i remember once in kindergarten a buddy of mine asked if he could borrow my markers and I, he said i said no i'm using them and he said well some friend you are and he stormed <laughs> off we, we haven't talked in 30 some years because of it. and that is the most some friend you are moment <laughs> in the entire film where what is it's 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 shocking that it actually works that that that, that hoffman or excuse me uh, Bernstein actually thinks that he's just going to guilt this dude because yeah. he's like, my editor's going to be mad at me. He's going to be mean to me. And it's probably also worth noting that that is the one scene that came from Bernstein and then girlfriend Nora, Nora Ephron's Ephron. unused script was the one where Bernstein is able to, out of pure will, make this man give him information. But uh, that is, I love that that is how he is characterized and whatever his deficits as an investigator may be. Redford will just politely with that Midwestern charm sit down and he'll just keep working you because he knows you're lying to him. He might not be the sharpest writer, the sharpest detective, but he will he will grab onto you and not let go until you tell him the truth. And and I love that about him. I love them about I love that about that character. Well, look, Travis has just said that he really loves characters who may not be the best writers, but they grab a hold of something and they scrutinize the living daylights out of it until they get the truth. So I'm just going to preemptively take that as a compliment and say, Travis Woods, thank you so much for popping on to be part of all the President's Minutes. I know you're a busy man. You've got lots of things on, so I'm not going to keep you for too much longer. I am going to demand Internet that... Internet as- I always have time for you. <laughs> I'm going to demand that you come back at some point for us to talk about another scene, but I do love that we somehow found a way to talk about Heat and Zodiac and once upon a time in Hollywood and Elliot Gould all in the same conversation. <laughs> I mean, I think it was like, if you had a bingo what do you card, me on? If, if, you, <laughs> if you had a bingo card of all the things that we need to talk about. And one final thing, because this is different to some of the shows that we're, you know, we on one eight minute productions have done because of its prescience. It's really funny. And I only just thought about it. So folks who may not know 
Um, I started an internet movie blog in Australia, uh, a sort of blog team up about, let's just say, seven years ago that has kind of now just uh, a lot of our writers have jumped off into bigger and better things, which is amazing. It's called Graffiti with Punctuation. And last night I watched Contagion again because right now in the world uh, – you, it is oh, in, Jesus, it, it's, it's an inescapable thing to not watch Contagion uh, with the, the coronavirus in there. So as we're recording this, just so you know, um, it's pretty close to when you're listening to it. It's the 2nd of March. But it only just occurred to me that I named that website Graffiti with Punctuation after a line spoken by none other than Elliot Gould. So he <laughs> tells Jude Law's character, blogging's not writing, it's graffiti with punctuation. So it is a very strange thing indeed to uh, f- to connect with this man again and to find the connections in some of our pre uh, uh, preoccupations, uh, crazy detectives um, uh, doing one good thing, Elliot Gould and the like. Um, so it's always a pleasure to talk to Mr. Travis Woods uh, on any show. But, mate, thank you so much for being a part of this show this time. Thank you for having me, and thank you for just making that what you were just talking about about Elliot Gould. I really thought for a minute you were going to come out and admit that you had the coronavirus. So I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're well. I'm glad you're well. Like, well, so far in Oz. Well, so far in Oz. There's more. There's I could, so much more to talk about. We're not going to take this down that rabbit hole. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk movies with you, man. That was my incredible partner in crime for increment vice, Travis Woods. If you want to find Travis, the best place to find him is at a heart of gold on Twitter. That will lead you everywhere to incrementvice.com, which uh, he hosts a weekly podcast in this very podcast feed. If you haven't listened, get along. Um, and also Brightwall Dark Room, where he's a writer and editor. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at OneBlakeMinute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to OneHeatMinute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on OneHeatMinute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please, subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed. Very soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.